Like it or not, it now looks inevitable that many, if not most, American students will be receiving much of their instruction online for the duration of this school year, and perhaps longer. That means millions of American teachers are now scrambling to adapt what they used to do in the classroom for the world of Zoom and Google. How can they best make that transition? And is it possible already to learn from teachers who have done so successfully? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guests today are Doug Lamov, Hannah Solomon, and Hillary Lewis, three members of the team at Teach Like a Champion, a unit within Uncommon Schools that works to describe, study, and share the practices of highly effective teachers. Doug, Hannah, and Hillary are among the authors of the timely new book, Teaching in the Online Classroom, Surviving and Thriving in the New Normal. And I'm very happy to have the chance to discuss it with them today. Doug, Hannah, Hillary, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having us. I should start out by saying that this book is not a pay on to the promise of new technologies to disrupt the traditional classroom. You all write in the introduction, on net the experience of learning online will likely be less productive for most students than classrooms are. It may be profoundly so for many in a way that impacts the most vulnerable learners most. Why is online instruction so hard? What are the fundamental challenges? Well, I'll describe two and then uh, I'll pass it to Hillary and Hannah and I'm sure they'll have more insights. But you know, one clear challenge is distance. We're used to working with students in bricks and mortar classrooms where we can interact with them in a wide variety of ways. You can stand over a student's shoulder as she completes a math problem or a writing prompt and see how she's doing at it and whether her ideas are holding together, whether she's struggling. You can see it both in the work that she writes and in her body language uh, as she works away at it. And now we transition to interacting with our students um, through a tiny keyhole in the corner of the screen, you know, uh, and it's harder to see whether they're working, how they're working, what they're doing, whether they're, uh, whether they're understanding what we're talking about, we're distanced. And that's, that's challenging in a relational business. Um, and one of the other challenges I think is the medium of the new business is, uh, comes through the screen, it comes through the internet. And uh, young people have, a, we all have a lot of experience interacting through the internet. And for, most, for the most part, those interactions are overwhelmingly passive. And so when we get on a call for work, for a meeting, you know, our first instinct is, will I be able to leave my camera off? Will I be able to sit back and sort of barely engage with this uh, endeavor? So people's first, the, the presumption is passivity. And so we have to, have to change that presumption right, presumption right away and signal to students, this is gonna be an active learning environment. You're important here. Uh, it's gotta be an inclusive environment. It's gotta be dynamic and active. And those are challenging things to do when you're far away from someone. Hilary, Hannah, what would you add? What are the challenges teachers are facing right now? Well, certainly one of the challenges, of course, is access, uh, consistent access to internet and access to computers. Um, I think that the numbers that we see in reporting, I mean, I think one number is 4.4 million students still lack consistent access to a computer. And then on top of that, uh, access to internet, there um, are just so many kids who just don't have that consistent access. So, so of course, access to internet um, has been uh, an incredible challenge. Millions of students currently do not have access to internet and of course, consistent access uh, to computers. So that's certainly one of the challenges that teachers are facing right now. So it's hard to teach effectively if you can't reach the students at all. Absolutely. Hannah, what would you add? Um, I would just say putting it all together, 
people, teacher, big people and little people love coming into classrooms because they're places of community. And what we connect around is the content um, and our excitement about being next to our friends and watching their eyes light up as they learn something new. And so for kids, part of the challenge of remembering that they have agency when they're looking at the screen is having a teacher who's able to remind them that yes, you're still part of a learning community, even though we are so very distanced from each other physically. And so the stance of this book is that, yes, there are very real challenges, yet as Kathleen Porter McGee puts it in her review of the book for Education Next, your team takes the radical stand that we can still deliver a good education for our students if we focus on adapting best practices to this new world. What makes you optimistic? Uh, you actually kicked it off, Marty, um, in your introduction when you said we can learn from teachers who have done so successfully. And I think that Doug and Erica write in the introduction, what Teach Like a Champion strives to do is to watch for those amazing, inspiring teachers, every single one of them who is uh, faced with a new challenge and forced to be creative to respond to that challenge for the sake of his or her students. And so we can be optimistic because we've watched hundreds, maybe 1,000 videos since March, and we've watched teachers around the world um, say, I'm not going to let social distancing, pandemic, or anything else come between me and my students and making sure that they are learning what they need to in order to be empowered citizens of the world. So what makes us optimistic is that we spend our time watching amazing teachers and they're solving these problems already. So to some extent that anticipates my next question, which was how did you put this book together? How did you do so so quickly? Uh, I take it you observed a lot of teachers making this transition last spring. Is that right, Doug? Yeah, as soon as the transition happened, I think we started watching video online. And, you know, I actually remember the very first video that we saw because we write about it in the book. Um, it was, you know, it was the very first morning after, uh, you know, not only we went home as a team and couldn't couldn't work together watching video anymore, but after uh, teachers got sent home. And it's it's this really lovely video that's in the book of a teacher named Rachel Shin. And, uh, you know, her, I can just imagine her first graders in that first morning, you know, wondering what this is all about and uh, what online learning is going to be. And she just leans in very beautifully uh, and warmly to her students and uh, greets them in a really compelling way and tells them to pause the camera and get all their things ready so they can engage in the lesson. And then she gets up from her camera. This is interesting. One of the few times that we saw a teacher get up and stand up while while teaching online and walks back to a piece of chart paper behind her and sort of starts teaching a math story problem in just in the same sort of happy sing-song cadence that you would see her do in the, in the bricks and mortar classroom. Uh, and it's just very, very compelling. And so uh, I don't think we set out to write a book. We just set out to start studying teachers like this who were doing it and, you know, we qu quickly realized that there was just an incredible demand. And so we took what we did, which is we love studying teachers and honoring their work and just tried to um, just tried to start delivering value mostly you know, or you know, delivering insight on it through our blog posts and things like that and um, uh, and you know things went from there and based on these observations of teachers teaching online you draw lessons about such specific issues as the roles of synchronous and asynchronous learning how to promote a culture of attention and engagement and approaches to check for student understanding one of the chapters is simply called Dissolve the Screen. Hillary, what do you all mean by that phrase and how can teachers accomplish it? So when we say dissolve the screen, we're specifically talking about 
heightening and strengthening students' awareness of the back and forth exchange that still exists between their teacher um, and themselves. And it's establishing that connection through work so that students and kids feel accountable and they feel connected at the same time. It strives to send the message that we see the work that you're doing and it matters. Teachers spend so much time uh, back in brick and mortar classrooms trying to build these positive, um, joyful, engaging and rigorous classroom cultures. And we are seeing such incredible examples of teachers being able to do that um, uh, through the screen, really breaking down that barrier um, to help students see and hear um, their teachers and feel seen and heard themselves. Um, so I'll start there and I'll let, I'll let my partners also add on to that too. Hannah, I see you nodding enthusiastically. What would you uh, add to what Hillary shared there? I'm just remembering in so many videos how kids light up at that moment where they are seen by their teacher. Um, and we have one example of a Spanish teacher, Nikki Hernandez, who cold calls a student at the beginning of class. And normally you hear cold call and you're like, oh, how's the student going to feel, especially through the screen? And instead, her face lights up because Ms. Hernandez, from her home all the way to her home, maybe across the town, has said, hey, Evie, I want you to be a part of this conversation. Um, and it's such a beautiful moment of dissolve the screen because it's I see you I need you and I need your voice to contribute to our learning. There are several examples in the book where you talk about teachers acknowledging the presence of individual students even just greeting them by name as they come in the classroom and I'll admit in my own teaching right now at the Harvard Graduate School of Education I've adopted that and tried to acknowledge students individually as they enter. I can't keep up with it when it gets up to 50 or 60, but I've tried to do that step-by-step uh, -step, uh, acknowledging students by name uh, uh, as a result of, of your work. Uh, so let's talk about some of the other topics you cover. One of the perennial questions about online instruction is what should be done synchronously and what should be done asynchronously, that is with teacher and student not present at the same time. Where do you all come down on that topic, Doug? Um, yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question, and I think it's one of the hardest questions. Uh, and I, the, the short answer is that I don't know <laughs> what the right answer is. I think that you know we, we trust teachers to make informed decisions. Uh, two of the things that I think we've been thinking are, one, that, uh, that it's important to think about the balance and to think about what, what's best about synchronous instruction. And so when I use it, what do I want to accomplish? And we think that it's best for one building those relationships. And so whenever I'm synchronous, I want to make sure that students feel heard and important and included. And so I'm thinking here of one of the videos we have of Eric Snyder, an English teacher in Rhode Island in our, in our, in our book. And he's, um, his students in his synchronous lesson are reading a chapter, reading a section of a chapter on their own for a few minutes. And as soon as they start, he says, you know, great work, David, I see you, uh, I see you, Lamaya appreciate all the work that you're doing. And so students just feel like they're connected to him and he goes out of his way to constantly let them know that he sees that he sees the work that they do. He appreciates their answers. And so that's one thing we want to accomplish when we're synchronous. And I think the other thing is we want to check for understanding, which is we want to use every opportunity we can to understand how students are learning, whether they're learning effectively and to be able to adapt our instruction in real time. And so the chat function is just a great example of a way that teachers can do that. And Eric in his lesson asks kids a question about the passage that they're reading from a novel and has them chat to him, you know, their answer. And right away he recognizes that about half of the students didn't really understand the passage as well as they could have. And so he goes back and rereads it. And so he's really trying to emphasize those things in synchronous instruction. 
And I think with asynchronous instruction, it also has strengths. It's more viable, I think, for, for self-paced, independent, more rigorous and extensive work. It's really hard on the Zoom call to be, uh, <laughs> Uh, to read a chapter and uh, write a paragraph about it, right? So that's a better assignment probably to think about doing asynchronously. It lets students have a bit of independence, do it autonomously, do it on their own, take their own time with it. And so we talk a lot about trying to unlock the synergies between the two of these. And one of our very favorite lessons is actually this, the lesson that I was mentioning by Eric Snyder, because he kind of does both in the lesson. It starts synchronously and he greets his kids and they read a section of the chapter aloud together synchronously online. He's just including every kid in the conversation. And then he says, great, now take 10 minutes and read the rest of the chapter on your own. I'll be here so you can chat me if you don't understand the vocabulary word so I can make sure that you're doing okay, so I can make sure that I've given you enough time, right? So they have this sort of loving safety net, but they get, they keep their cameras on um, and he posts on his screen what the assignment is so they don't lose sight of it. And so they can work independently kind of, it's like an asynchronous task. And then after 10 minutes, he says, great, let's bring it back. Let's talk a little bit about what you saw in the novel and what you thought of the section of the chapter. And then they go back to the, synchron to the synchronous and they do the thing that synchronous does well. And so as much as making the, you know, I think one of our big takeaways is it's not an either or choice between synchronous and asynchronous and that a lesson can actually include elements of, of both. And I think that also helps to manage students' attention and focus. Maintaining your attention and focus is really hard online. We've all had a day of Zoom calls where, you know, we're wiped out by Zoom fatigue. And I just think what Eric does there of like a significant chunk of asynchronous type work in the middle of the synchronous lesson is a really nice way to help students maintain and sustain their focus. I mean, if nothing else, they're actually reading out of a, out of a real book, a hard copy book as opposed to looking at a screen, which I just think is a gift to kids. Now, one of the things you mentioned in that answer, Doug, is checking for understanding. And in my transition to online instruction, I found that to be one of the more challenging uh, aspects. I realized that in person, I'm able to check for understanding in more informal ways by seeing students' eyes light up, by seeing them nod in agreement at the right times, right? Uh, and so I think I've been doing some informal assessment of students' understanding that's very difficult to do when we're only interacting via a, a Zoom meeting. Are there other strategies beyond the individual chat that you just mentioned that you saw teachers using in order to try to make sure that students are mastering the content that's being delivered? We tend to think about assessment uh, in three ways. Uh, we think about implicit assessment, right, which doesn't actually accomplish what you talked about, Marty, in terms of giving the teacher that terrific feedback of whether or not students are learning. Um, what we like about implicit assessment, meaning the teachers asked a question and it's on the students to answer the question and then compare their answer to the correct answer. What we really like about that is that it gives students that chance to consolidate what they're learning, um, even though it doesn't quite complete, complete that feedback loop, loop excuse me, that teachers are looking for. Um, when we think about check for understanding though, we think about the two other forms of assessment, um, which are lagging assessment and real-time assessment, right? So lagging assessment, 
in our brick and mortar classrooms look like homework. It was, we're going to discuss this concept together. Uh, students are going to maybe answer on a Google Doc, maybe email me an answer, maybe take a picture of a worksheet I've completed and send it to me. And then the teacher has a chance to review that data and respond in the next day's class, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous. Um, and of course, the biggest challenge is figuring out how to get that real-time data and do real-time assessment so that we can do what we all love to do in our brick and mortar classrooms, which is respond to a, a point of student confusion as soon as we see it. And for that, our best bets so far, and Hillary and Doug are gonna chime in and add on to this, are the chat, particularly simplifying the questions. So it's maybe a multiple choice question that didn't used to be a multiple choice question so the teacher can quickly review the data data um, or something that we're calling loosely a linked sheet which is any place where students can input their answers whether it's a google doc uh, or there's next um, nearpod has features that do this um, and the teacher can then respond real time to what students are writing but i'm looking to my colleagues to make my answer better now i'll just i'll give you a couple of examples of that uh, we watched a really nice uh example of a teacher named Catherine snap the other day uh, and she's a science teacher her students are uh, she's in the midst of class and they each have their own sort of Google sheet, but she can see the Google sheets. And so she asked them to write a quick paragraph describing the role of dominant and recessive alleles. And you can just see her like clicking through the sheets as they're working. So kind of like Eric, she gives them five minutes to work on their own. But as they're working on their own, she's clicking through the sheets, checking to see, you know, how they do and giving them real time feedback. Love your use of the word recessive there. Uh, there, Marty, that was super, that kind of thing. And one other thing that I think some of the biggest challenges of online learning are with our youngest pupils. Uh, you know, so what's the right dosage of um, screen time for a first grader or a kindergartner and what are the right activities? And I think one thing that's really easy to overlook is, um, is what we call show me, which is just the use of mini whiteboards, though you could replicate it with paper if you needed to. We watched a lesson the other day of a math teacher asking her students to write out a mathematical expression and they were using a, you know, a fairly high tech um, interface where the students had to write the problem with a cursor onto the screen. And it, it just took the poor student that she called on so long to do it and used up all of his or her working memory, probably trying to do it. And a much simpler solution would have been like, take your whiteboards, write the expression on the whiteboard, show me on the screen, right? And then I can just glance at the screen and say, great, Hillary, that's lovely, Hannah, perfect. Uh, Marty, well done. Or Marty, check your, you know, uh, check your sign. It's not addition, something like that. And so I think that story is interesting because it reminds us that a lot of the tools that we can use to be successful in online are really adaptations of things that we use um, in a bricks and mortar classroom. Yeah, I've noticed that exact same issue with my fifth grader that sometimes the technology that he's given to try to show his work in math, for example, is so complicated that uh, it interferes with his ability to show his work yeah. uh, rather than facilitating that. And can I say it's the same for teachers? Like our, our, our working memory as teachers can also be overtaxed by trying to use too much technology at once. It's impossible to really listen to what kids are saying about the novel if you're trying to figure out too much technology. So we really encourage teachers to phase in the technology slowly. You know, master Zoom, master, master chat, then maybe add breakout rooms before you go to where, you know, this teacher, Catherine, who I was describing, did a beautiful job with this, these linked Google Sheets, but don't feel like you have to go there the first day, right? You have to build up your own capacity to use the technology progressively. Well, that leads naturally into the next question I wanted to ask, which is, 
What are the most important limitations of the technological tools currently available to teachers for online instruction? What did the teachers you studied and observed say that they wished they could do but couldn't? I have a non-technical answer. I think yeah. it's really hard to figure out how to get kids to talk to each other, mm -hmm. but also be able to monitor their conversations because you can't be in all the breakout rooms at the same time. And so I think that that's like, that, I don't think we've seen anyone actually solve that unless they have more than one teacher on in terms of the way like a teacher can monitor the room for turn and talks, but you can't like, I, I mean, if I was seven, that's not what I would talk yeah. about in my breakout room, right? And so I feel like that's like one hard challenge. And yeah. that's a fundamental problem to solve in the sense that uh, you can't be two places at once. And so I guess we can make it much easier for teachers to pop across different breakout rooms that they've created. I think this is a good example of, of, of a time when you can leverage your skills as a, as a bricks and mortar classroom teacher that are really applicable. One, I think Hannah's point is really well taken that one of the easiest things to forget is that kids are not just isolated from us, they're isolated from one another. And so things like um, breakout rooms are really important, but they're challenging to do well in the same way that a turn and talk in the classroom is challenging to do well. So a couple of things that we've seen teachers doing that I think help to solve this um, in order to be able to give you time to talk with your peers and interact with them. I also need to have accountability systems to make sure that that time is productive and useful. Um, one is turning it into a turn and task, which is it's not just you going to a breakout room with a partner to talk, but but here's the task. When you come back, I'll ask you for a solution to this problem, or I'll ask you to write together a sentence that explains how Jonas is changing in the chapter. There's also um, there's a really nice <clears throat> tool in Zoom, at least, where you can drop into um, to breakout rooms quickly, just to make sure that they're going well. And uh, and I think it's also really helpful to help students know how to start conversations. I mean, I know this is the case with adults, which is someone drops you into a, a breakout room and you don't really know who's who's going to go first and how to start the conversation. And so teaching kids a little bit of routine, which is like, you just greet your partner. Hi, Hannah, what did you think? Right, and then away we're going and one of us starts. And a, a teacher who we just posted a video of, Ben Esser does a really beautiful job sometimes of saying, when you get to your breakout rooms, the person who's let, whose name starts with the letter closest to the beginning of the alphabet should start the conversation. And then we avoid all that time of like, who will, the awkward silence of who will go first and the talkers talking and the non-talkers not talking. So I agree that like peer-to-peer -peer interactions are the hardest, are the, are the biggest challenge. Um, but again, I think a lot of those like master moves in the bricks and mortar classroom are relevant here as well. Now, one of the themes of the book I picked up is that the fundamental principles of good instruction transcend the divide between in-person and online format. And in my own teaching, I found that whenever I'm forced to reflect on why I'm doing anything in the classroom, that reflection leads me to do better going forward. And so with, with that in mind, do you think that this experience of having to wrestle with the transition to online instruction may make teachers more effective when they return to the classroom? I think, well, when you pose that question, Marty, I just, the first word that came into my mind was gratitude. There's just an immense amount of gratitude, first off, to all the teachers who are doing just this incredible work to try to, um, you know, figure out how to do school online. And we've learned just a ton from them. And I think um, when you mentioned the things that transcend uh, brick and mortar and online, you know, we think about the ways that teachers make students feel safe 
how they make them feel successful and how they make them feel known. And that's one of the things that we talk about in the book, this framework of safe, successful, and known. So when we're thinking about how challenging um, learning is in an online classroom, um, you know, we see that teachers that have created these safe learning environments where students feel comfortable, you know, coming into class every day, they feel excited to be able to share their thoughts and ideas. They've developed this beautiful culture of air where it's okay um, to make mistakes, whether we're online or if we're in person, um, where students feel like their work is seen and appreciated. We see both of those things happening um, in online classrooms as well as in brick and mortar classrooms. Um, and again, we've mentioned this before previously, but just the fact that a teacher will greet you when you first come into your Zoom classroom of the day, you know, saying, you know, good morning, Hannah, good morning, Doug. Um, all those things are just so important um, in both venues um, where we have a privilege of teaching students. And so um, I would just say again, just back to this idea of gratitude um, because we've learned so much um, both in the classroom um, brick and mortar, but also online and that those things are just so crucial. Those themes are so important um, throughout. I think that's such a good point that Hillary made. And I just would maybe add to it that because it's so much harder to, to build community and make students feel safe and successful and known online, I think it can actually develop our skills to make us even better at it when we return to bricks and mortar classrooms. You know, um, it is really hard to make to help 30 kids feel included and seen in a Zoom classroom and you have to be really intentional about not being afraid sometimes to spot a quiet kid who doesn't, who, who hasn't volunteered yet and say, Marty, what do you think? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts here. And that um, that can then make you better and more comfortable with doing that in a bricks and mortar classroom also, right? <laughs> Necessity is the, is the mother of invention sometimes of, of, teaching, of teaching moves. And so because we have to be much more intentional about including every student and making them feel an important part of the environment, I do think that some teachers maybe will come out of this experience more comfortable mastering the the, particip the inclusive participation moves like, you know, uh, like I think cold call is a great example, but also, you know, um, using writing more intentionally to say what, you know, to let students write. A lot of times online, we might let students chat first or write first and then say, great, what were you thinking? And doing that in the classroom allows you to call in any student because you know that every student has written something and you can peek over their shoulder and say, oh, so interesting. Thank you for, thank you for using that word allele. Hannah, tell us a little bit more about that. So. I, I do think there's a, maybe a potential silver lining there. Uh, just, you know, the teachers have worked so hard to master this and I, I, I don't think the things that they're learning in this environment will be, uh, I think those things will continue to be applicable when we hopefully return to classrooms. My guests today have been Doug Lamov, Hannah Solomon, and Hillary Lewis, co-authors of Teaching in the Online Classroom, Surviving and Thriving in the New Normal. You can find a review of their new book on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Doug, Hannah, Hillary, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.